Thank you for joining the Chest Wellness webinar, Wellness webinar for September. The title of this discussion is Taking Care of Your Team During COVID-19. My name is Alex Niven, and uh, I am really looking forward to this conversation with just a fantastic interprofessional panel that we have assembled today. We have a few administrative notes that we would like to cover before we get started. Next slide, please. So I want to highlight for everyone who's joined us today, the Chest Wellness Center, which is available. This is an image on the slide. And if you could take a phone, you can scan the QR code that's in the bottom left corner of the screen to go directly there. This Wellness Center includes recordings of all the webinar series that we have put together uh, for, this, for this initiative, along with a variety of curated resources that we hope healthcare providers will find helpful as they deal with the challenges of COVID-19. Next slide, please. As I mentioned, this is a wellness webinar series. And so we started this, uh, this initiative in July talking about the importance of a deliberate approach to high performance. Mm -hmm. And in August talked about specific individual tactics um, to maximize our performance, um, both for ourselves and our patients. Today, we're talking about our team. And in, uh, in November and December, we're gonna talk about organizational approaches to resilience and, uh, and mindset considerations. Next slide. So again, my name is Alex Niven. I'm a consultant in pulmonary critical care medicine at Mayo Clinic and uh, the chair of this wellness initiative. And uh, I'm just going to have the other individuals on our panel introduce themselves as we go through this next series of, uh, of slides. Joe, can you go next? Hi, good afternoon, everyone. My name is Joe Felice. I am the nurse manager for the CVICU and NeuroICU, and most recently the COVID ICU and the University of Miami Hospital and Clinics. Thanks so much, Joe. Kathy? Good afternoon. My name is Kathy Fedor. I'm a registered respiratory therapist. I am a clinical manager for the pediatric respiratory therapy department at Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland, Ohio. I'm also the president of the National Board for Respiratory Care, um, and I'm happy to join you today. Thank you so much, Kathy. Julie? Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Julie Jackson. I am the manager for respiratory care and ECLS services at Unity Point Health, Des Moines in Des Moines, Iowa. Welcome, Julie. Carl? Thank you for the invitation. I'm Carl Kaplan. I'm the chair of the Chest Respiratory Care Steering Committee. And I'm currently working with Kathy as a, on the Board of Trustees for the National Board of Respiratory Care. And I'm a pulmonary critical care physician. Along with many, many other responsibilities, Carl. Geneva? Hi, good afternoon, everyone. I'm Geneva Tatum. I am an Associate Professor of Medicine at Wayne State University School of Medicine and the Fellowship Program Director of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at Henry Ford Hospital. Thanks, Geneva. Joanne? Hey, everyone. Um, excited to uh, be part of this panel. I am uh, Joanne Wozniak, and uh, I am the lead advanced practitioner uh, for the pulmonary and critical care team at Leahy Hospital and Medical Center in the Metro Boston area. And James. Hi, everybody. Uh, thanks for the invitation. My name is James Town. I'm an assistant professor of medicine in the Division of Pulmonary Critical Care and Sleep Medicine at University of Washington. And I'm the director of the medical ICU at Harborview Medical Center. Well, welcome all and really excited uh, about our discussion today. Uh, this is our disclosure slide with regards to conflicts of interest. And if we move on to the next slide, just a few housekeeping tips before we start. So, uh, so this activity is accredited for uh, CME credit. Uh, along with both nursing, nurse practitioner, PA, and respiratory therapy credit. Uh, and so the instructions in terms of how to gain credit is there and also was sent to you as part of the registration for this webinar. And, uh, and again, this is the, uh, the methods to claim credit for this activity. And I believe that is our last slide. And so with that, we will start this conversation. So... Welcome to the September edition of our Chess Wellness webinar series. And our topic today, again, is taking care of the team during COVID-19. 
I don't think I need to tell either the panelists or the attendees just how much COVID-19 has disrupted our daily practice, both personally and professionally, um, since the onset of this infection and the challenging impact that it has created globally. We know that teamwork is an essential component of any high-performing healthcare environment and has been an important factor to help manage the challenges and additional workloads that we face uh, caring for patients with COVID-19. Our teams have been under now considerable stress for an extended period of time, and strategies to support and sustain these team members' performance has been a growing concern, certainly at my institution, and I suspect in many others across the country. Many healthcare systems have been forced to augment staffing with individuals without formal critical care training during times of increased ICU surge capacity and have faced the challenge on how best to prepare and integrate these individuals into their unit organization and culture. And so really, how to sustain our teams and how to prepare individuals who don't traditionally work with our teams um, to best integrate themselves with our clinical environment um, so that we continue to maintain the best clinical setting to take care of our patients is the challenge that we face today. So what I'd like to do is start by drawing from this distinguished faculty um, a little bit of their past experiences in terms of the challenges that they faced over the course of um, the pandemic in their individual practice settings um, and see if we can identify some of the key lessons learned that we need to think about as we prepare for the winter ahead, which I think all of us recognize is potentially gonna be a challenging one. So I guess I'd like to start with James. Uh, so James is from Harborview in Seattle and uh, was really at the tip of the spear when it came to um, dealing with COVID patients and putting together uh, an environment that supported a team during a very challenging start um, to the global pandemic in the United States. So James, I wanna put you on the spot a little bit and just, just tell us a little bit about your initial experience and the things that you all worked together to do as a team. Um, yeah, I mean, Thank you for um, the question. It, it's, uh, I was just reflecting on how much things have changed since back then. Our first patient in Harborview was identified in the last week of February, actually. So it was really before um, we were all prepared to take care of COVID patients. Um, our infection control team had been thinking about this for a month or so, just based on reports out of China. Um, but pretty quickly, we had to mobilize a different ICU, which was normally our neuro ICU and um, sort of augment the physical structure to accommodate more negative airflow. Um, and we you know, have an older hospital, so it wasn't really used to that kind of change in, um, in the HVAC system. And in addition to that, I think, um, you know, everyone, I think, had uh, nursing, respiratory therapy physicians. We all um, were stunned by just, you know, the change to the workflow around the system uh, at the outset where, you know, elective surgeries and things were canceled and there was, you know, reduction in uh, visitors in the, in the hospital. Um, and also, but, you know, like you said, being at the tip of the spear in a way that our, it was our job and our duty to take care of those patients. Um, and that's why we had all this resources and infrastructure built up. So I think it was a real mixed bag of emotions for people. It's just, you know, facing something that was new and unknown and surprising, but at the same time, I think we all recognize was our duty to, to be in that position. So I think a lot of, you know, the development of camaraderie and spirit happened around that time was, you know, at, at the outset where we said, okay, we're all gonna take this challenge on together. And we're gonna work together and we know we're not gonna be perfect, but we're gonna adapt as a team. So I think that that spirit, I would say, was one of the things that got us through those most difficult periods. You know, something that I'm regularly reminded every time that I'm in the ICU is that for every five minutes that I spend at a COVID patient's bedside, uh, I have a bedside ICU nurse who is spending hours, literally, compared to my five minutes, uh, and respiratory therapists that also are spending um, much, much more time and therefore are 
likely more impacted by the the personal protective equipment and all the challenges that that it comes uh, that come with COVID patients. Um, I want to turn perhaps to to Kathy and then to Joe and uh, um, and uh, Julie to maybe talk a little bit about how that experience has been for them and the people that they've worked with. Well, I think, you know, one of the biggest things was that um, in our ICU, all the RTs and the physicians and the nurses all had a buddy. And that buddy was responsible for um, making sure that donning and doffing was done correctly, first of all, um, so that you always made sure that that was always, you were always safe. Um, the other thing that we did was we got quite innovative in our techniques about how we set up our rooms. Um, our patients went in feet first sometimes so that we could separate our ventilators and our screens and the IV pumps were outside the room so that we could minimize the number of times that we went into the room and use less per PPE and protective equipment. Um, that was not unheard of, I think, in burn units, you know, that they, they actually separate the ventilators and the screens quite often. Um, most of our institutions, we have, we're a 12 hospital system, and most of our ventilators are servo ventilators, so they have 12 feet of cable already, or seven feet of cable, I should say, already on them. And so you can separate them quite easily. The, the trick was to put the screen on a stable mount so that they didn't fall off and shatter. So that was important. In terms of the IV pumps, it was really a, um, um, a matter of trying it, testing it, and using it, making sure that it worked <laughs> safely. So that was kind of how that process went along because the, the thought process behind it was, you know, if you went in and made a rate change based on a blood gas and maybe you forgot to adjust the ventilator alarm, having to don and dock just to go in and change an alarm system was another repeated exposure. So, um, you know, it was felt that this was really not only a caregiver satisfier, but it was also an important safety feature that we were able to do in order to make sure that people had less exposure to COVID in and of itself. Um, you know, on top of that, we, we did a lot of education for all of our staff. You know, and it, it allowed us to respond to alarms that were appropriate, knowing that we didn't have to go in the room every single time something alarmed. We knew when IV pumps were running low. We knew when ventilators could be troubleshot from outside the room rather than inside the room. Um, so it, it was really, it made better use of our resources. Um, I think, you know, we had daily COVID calls. So we you know, as everyone knows, things changed extremely rapidly over time, especially in the beginning. So it allowed us to, you know, kind of communicate those changes on a really rapid basis. And so I think that was really, really important um, because we translated all of those daily COVID calls into a written document that lived on our intranet. And then we had a My Learning module that was kind of in our um, computerized learning program that everybody could log on to. They could either participate live on the weekly um, presentations or they could actually log on and do it at, when they had time. So, you know, it gave us the opportunity to educate everybody equally. So. No, some incredibly innovative solutions to a very challenging situation. Uh, you know, there was a question in the chat box with regards to um, if there's any published data in terms of uh, morbidity or mortality associated with healthcare providers take, caring for COVID-19 patients. I, I'm actually not aware of anything to that effect. Um, although, um, Julie, could I turn to you for a second uh, to ask about the wall um, that uh, the AARC has commemorating individuals who uh, who um, have uh, have have basically uh, died in related to COVID nineteen in their service? 
Sure. Um, so the AARC has put together um, a, a virtual memorial. Um, so that is um, an area where respiratory therapists or anybody can donate to. And what we're trying to do is um, get the names of all the respiratory therapists um, in the country, um, regardless if they're a member or not a member, um, so that we can honor them as respiratory therapists um, for their service um, during this uh, COVID time. So that is um, out there on uh, the AARC's website. Anybody can access that. You don't have to be a member um, to, to do that. And, and I know that a lot of us in our state societies have pushed that information out as well because it is really hard to capture um, from the AARC standpoint um, who has all been af affected by this around the country. We know that therapists have, but we don't always hear about it. Um, and it's, it's nice for some of us as well. Um, like in my local facility, one of the things that we did is every time we could figure out that there was a therapist that might have passed away, we did a concerted effort here to send a sympathy card. We all signed it um, from our department and sent at least a sympathy card saying we were thinking of you um, in your department, you know, um, just but, but not always knowing. So that wall is helpful too, because when we want to reach out and make sure we're capturing everybody from our department perspective too. Well, thanks, Julie. Joe, give us some perspective from a nursing standpoint. Sure. Um, thank you for the question. Um, I think what's what's most um, what's most interesting to me is the power of intuition. Because as I listen to other stories, I think, wow, we had something very similar, and there's really been no there's really been no book on how to do this. And I think I think that's what's made me so proud to be in this profession right now is because although we had a very challenging situation. Um, I think we all kind of pulled together and made it happen. Um, but anyways, uh, from a nursing perspective, um, you know, to say that I'm, I'm extremely proud of our team and our organization for handling this the way we did would be an understatement. Um, right from the get-go, we, you know, we had a little bit more time, uh, and I say like a few days more time, to kind of see it coming a little bit. So, you know, we were planning a long time before it actually arrived here. Um, but I, I think that Again, as Kathy said, I think we were very innovative in our approach. Um, we quickly understood that uh, our, our normal ICUs may not be the, the right place to take care of these patients because we do have some limitations as far as uh, negative pressure. So, um, you know, in working with our mechanics and our engineers, we were able to take uh, multiple med surge units and, and transition them to um, negative pressure units. The whole unit was negative pressure. Um, and then we kind of closed them all in. And, you know, as we were taking care of patients, the nurses and the doctors, everybody be in there at the same time and the therapists. Um, and again, we created that, what we called a, a trained observer. That's what we called it. Um, and that observer was somebody who stood in, in our anteroom. So instead of an anteroom for every room, we had an anteroom for the whole entire hallway. Um, and that hallway, basically when you came out or into that hallway, that, that observer was there to watch you. Um, so that was typically always a nurse and it was really collaborative on our part, I think, to see even physicians um, and, and support staff, therapists, nurses, all of us, housekeeping, um, even physical therapy, everybody who had to go see patients, um, you know, was able to work with this observer and respect that position to the point where they were there to help you. Um, and, and a lot of our effort really focused around that, what happened in that anteroom. Um, and, and making sure that we were donning it properly and, uh, and of course, specifically when we doffed it. Um, and, and I really feel like um, nursing really worked collaboratively with everybody to make sure that our process was solid and that once we had a plan in place, uh, everybody was able to follow it. Um, and, you know, we just kept listening to the staff. What makes you feel uncomfortable? What makes you feel comfortable? What can we make better? What do we need to start over with? Um, having routine, again, routine meetings, routine discussions, daily 3 p.m. calls with administration about what support did we need? What could we back off on? What, you know, what do we need to change? Um, so just a lot of pieces of the puzzle. And, and I'm proud to say that that nursing and respiratory was never left out of the loop uh, when it came time to make important decisions right from the very beginning. So I hear common themes of lots of communication, collaboration, innovation and support, both personally and also maintaining consistency with the 
new and novel practices that we had. Um, I want to turn a little bit to Geneva and Joanne before we move back and talk about um, how you, we were able to implement some of the successful things that we were, because we all recognize that um, in addition to physicians and nurses and respiratory therapists, uh, you know, advanced practice providers have shouldered a substantial burden when it comes to the care of patients in the ICU with COVID-19. And especially in our academic and teaching institutions, most of that point of care is delivered by, uh, by fellows and residents. And so I think those are two very unique perspectives we need to, to bring out. So maybe I'll turn to, to Joanne first to talk a little bit about some of the challenges that, uh, that um, she faced in her hospital with regards to the APP practice and supporting um, the, the care of patients with COVID-19. And then Geneva to talk a little bit about her experiences as a program director um, at Henry Ford. Joanne? Thanks so much, Alex. And um, much like uh, our colleagues have talked about from respiratory uh, therapy standpoint and nursing standpoint, the advanced practice providers um, work collaboratively with all of the team members, the physicians, RTs, nurses. And in our institution, our EPPs are um, at, the, at our peak of COVID, there's a bunch of 13 strong, uh, exceptional critical care providers. And they went above and beyond. Uh, our unit, it was a 12-bed unit. We saw so many COVID patients that we flipped into a bigger unit. Um, and then from that unit, we went to a second, a third, a fourth. And as the units opened, the APPs uh, team that normally worked together side by side split up and each AP went into each of the different units to lead the others within those units um, in critical care that um, they may normally not have done since med school or since residency. So the way Leahy um, staffed the units were with one skilled critical care provider and then with support providers. And those came from all over the institution from surgeons, uh, attending anesthesiologists, um, attending nephrologists and uh, residents and fellows. And we all worked together. And um, I'm so proud of our EPP team as they led the charge in ARDS management and um, all the initiatives that we needed to do as we were taking care of the COVID team. Uh, some of the struggles that they faced were how quickly we expanded and how quickly we needed to teach the non-critical care providers critical care. Um, you needed to learn pretty complicated event management, shock management uh, very quickly. And um, the burden, a lot of it fell to the APP team to teach all of our providers um, these uh, initiatives. Hearing um, the difficulties that we, we had during that time and how quickly we expanded, um, we have started training a reservist program in preparation for potentially a second wave and a, a second surge, gosh forbid, if it were to come uh, in the coming months. And we have uh, another fantastic group of advanced practitioners from Leahy from all different uh, backgrounds that have stepped up and volunteered uh, to learn critical care, uh, albeit very quickly, um, but uh, we are uh, having them work with us uh, side by side in the unit, taking patients, rounding. Uh, they attend a, a course that Leahy is paying for uh, virtually to learn critical care and then work with us in the unit uh, for uh, five shifts and then coming back for refreshers uh, to if, gosh forbid, we did surge, they'd be called upon and uh, would be deployed to our ICUs to work side by side with the uh, critical care providers. Um, so it's uh, pretty amazing to see um, everybody, much like Joe said and everybody else has been saying, the collaboration and the teamwork um, that COVID brought out. Um, it's, it's definitely been a very tough time, but everybody has stepped up uh, across the system and, and just want to do the right thing for the patients and each other as well. Um, so it's, it's, it's been tough, but they're an amazing bunch at Leahy. Selfishly, I will uh, do a little shout out for them, but um, uh, it's, it's great to see everybody else stepping up as well and, and working on this program. Yeah, no, that sounds like an amazing and well-organized program. Geneva, how did you approach things at Henry Ford in terms of supporting your trainees? Yeah, I think there were manifold issues um, to address um, as, you know, a program director and in, in, in terms of uh, team leadership and team structure. Uh, we uh, found at the peak of our surge, we 
doubled our ICU capacity from about 68 medical ICU beds to over 120 medical ICU beds in about a week. Um, and so that required us to do an enormous amount of team coordination and team organization. Um, and so about the second or third week into our surge, um, we declared a, an emergency categorization um, by the ACGME, um, which basically alerts them that there's you know, substantial and sustained disruptions in programs uh, across the entire hospital. Um, and so with that emergency uh, categorization, we were able to reconfigure um, our uh, ICU teams and make sure that we had both a horizontal and vertical deployment. So that way we could get trainees from other programs, residents from other programs to deploy into our ICUs. Uh, we developed a platoon system very early on. So for my fellows, our pulmonary and our critical care fellows, um, we developed sort of a, a backup platoon, if you will, so that we deployed them into our ICUs at night. And then we had a separate platoon that would rotate on two-week blocks into the ICU and out so that they could get proper rest, proper downtime away from clinical activity within the hospital, um, and also be a backup platoon for those uh, fellows who were actively deployed into the hospital um, in case we had additional needs. And so this was a learning process as we were doing it, just like everyone else, um, because we, you know, obviously at the outset didn't know how many of our trainees would potentially be exposed or how many of our faculty would be. So um, developing that platoon system very early on was incredibly important. And as the surge continued, you know, it became um, important to work across both residency and fellowship programs in terms of prioritizing the things that are important to us in, in the academic world, um, particularly when we look at uh, work hour requirements, making sure, again, that we were all in, compliant, in compliance with those work hours and made sure that residents and fellows who were deployed from other programs, that their program directors were reassured that that, that was a, a priority for us. Because again, it was incredibly important to make sure that we were mindful of the overall well-being of all of our trainees deployed throughout the hospital. Um, and so making sure that we kept a close watch on how frequently they were being called in um, to take care of these patients and what the overall workload uh, was for them was incredibly important. And I think also, you know, having the proper resources, it, it cannot be underestimated and underemphasized the importance of, of making sure that our trainees had proper PPE, but not only had the physical equipment, but had the ability to train on how to don and doff. It seems easy to us now because we've been doing it for months on end, but really helping them um, do that process safely so that they could protect their patients, protect themselves and protect their team members um, was, was a key step for that. Um, and I think that was an important step for them in order to make sure that they didn't um, assume unnecessary risk um, by not having the resources and the training that they needed to take uh, proper care of their patients. Oh, so that's fantastic. So trying to summarize what I think is already a, a, a long list of take-home points from this. So early in the pandemic, there was a huge sense of challenge, and I think that drove a lot of camaraderie and collaboration as we adapted to new systems and processes, uh, spent considerable time putting together resources to help train and strengthen our teams, and, uh, and also looked creatively at ways to staff, you know, significant increased load. Um, I think that Geneva has started to touch on something that I really wanted to delve a little bit deeper into, which is as the months go on, I know that my teams have started to get tired and thinking about deliberate approaches to support those teams 
who have been working really hard for a really long period of time is something that has been an increasing concern at our institution. And then the second part is recognizing the rapidity with which we had to scale um, you know, more ICU beds with potentially non-traditional staff. Um, Joanne has already talked a little bit about, um, you know, one way to sustain a, a reserve group to, uh, to, to potentially um, rise to meet the next surge. Um, and I wanted to pose that question to the group a little bit in terms of more detail and lessons learned, um, both in terms of processes and procedures. And Kathy, there's, there's also a question in the chat box with regards to the remote monitoring techniques that, uh, that you all employ at Cleveland Clinic. But before we move into that, I wanted to turn a little bit to Carl because uh, Carl is unique from the standpoint that he has volunteered um, to serve as a locums in a variety of surge areas over the course of the pandemic. And I think probably has some unique perspectives from the end user standpoint, what's it, what it's like to step into a new environment um, with a group of people you haven't worked with before um, and deal with what we all know is still a, a very challenging group of patients to care for. So, Carl? Well, thank you, Alex. That's a difficult thing to, to address because every institution is vastly different. Every culture is vastly different. Every design, their resources, the mechanical things they have, whether they do have potentials for remote monitoring, if they had only 100% LTV ventilators uh, taking care of the sickest of sick patients. So um, it's very hard to compare one versus the other. But the most unique and rewarding was my experience in March and April in New York City. Because it's not that they had to ramp up to a virtually 100% census of nearly almost everybody in the hospital was ICU candidates uh, and related to COVID. But it was also the uniqueness of the behaviors to develop immediate functional teams, not only for people that were already in the system, from anywhere from the elevator operator to the runners running back and forth with lab specimens, the residents, the fellows, the nurses, the PAs were outstanding. But it's also the fact that it was like an all-star game where we had physicians coming in from University of California, San Francisco, from Cleveland Clinic, from um, uh, Intermountain, from Utah. So we had outstanding people coming from different uh, places with their own backgrounds and the cultures within their organizations and, and strengths. And they have to, had to immediately adapt and they had to immediately form the teams. And I took over three teams at, di at three different times when I was there. And I have to show, say, I thought it was only because I'm from New York that I was able to do it. Unfortunately, I have a very strong accent that never left me. So they knew where I was from. So they were familiar with my, ac uh, with my communication skills. But also the fact that people adapted immediately. It was almost like what I say is a choose-up game um, of basketball or basketball, uh, baseball or soccer in any particular field. People immediately knew to stay on the court, they had to play together. They had a purpose to win and they had to not show off because they knew if they lost, they were off the field and they never had, there was no chance for that day to play anymore. So it was just an incredible privilege working with incredible clinicians, whether from any, every level, that immediately adapted. And I was very impressed, not that I'm anybody of anything of worthy, but I was immediately apt to um, identify myself and recognize every member of my team and very large teams. And the respect and coordination was almost immediate. And the people were able to adapt. And whether it was a resident functioning as a fellow, a fellow functioning as an attending, uh, nurses and therapists, exceeding their scope of practice in every possible way for the better good of the patient. It was, it was the best experience of my whole life. It's like going to a concert. If you weren't there, there's no way to describe it. Um, but that was unique for this um, academic center that actually 45 years ago, I was a volunteer. At, it was an old Salvation Army acad um, academic facility that got me to leave my PhD, that got me to leave veterinary school and go into human practice because it's that same thing. It was the community. It was the patients all working together. People bringing in meals from different organizations, bringing food 24 hours a day. Everybody in the community wanted to participate. So it wasn't just a collective entity with respect to... Um, the respectful um, working together collaboratively as clinicians, 
but it was the larger community that was also involved. So that was very different though when I went to different regions of the, of the country because they had more time to ramp up, but at the same time they were overloaded and each one addressed the magnitude of patients having to be transported out and sometimes at hundreds at a time. Um, the thing that I just wanna give a shout out that I don't think anybody's mentioned to, when I had the privilege of working alongside the National Guard, I don't think, I mean, we all recognize the PAs, the nurses, everybody, dietitians, physical therapists, you name it, everybody was giving patients care. But the um, incredible people in each state, the National Guard that ramped up immediately and had to influence, um, engage into systems that they also never were worked before. And they worked parallel, they had uniformity, they had consistency, and I was overwhelming. If I had to remember one important thing that was the most valuable experience for me outside of the New York City experience was working alongside the Guard, National Guard. Um, and again, I don't think they get a, enough uh, recognition of what they offer their states, their regions, and the, and the country. Uh, incredible clinicians, both nurses, therapists, technicians, therapists, and physicians. So it was hard to find the commonality. The easiest things was the patient. We were focused on the patient. The contrast, unfortunately, is when systems now late in the game are trying to ramp up their um, economic necessities and their, standard, their routine practices, trying to maintain uh, their hist history and to maintain their financial viability. But it's, um, and that sometimes is in conflict uh, with regards to the COVID mission. I wouldn't say conflict in terms of contradictory, but it, uh, challenging to have them parallel together. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure if I addressed the, what you were hoping for me. No, I think that's perfect, Carl, because I, I think it gives us, I think, a very different perspective. You know, most of us have, have worked on our own institutions in, in sort of very unusual circumstances. Um, you have taken that experience one step further in terms of moving, uh, moving through a variety of different institutions, working with different people in different areas. So what, I've, what I'd like to get to in the last now 20 minutes that we have is thinking a little bit about how we draw from these lessons and apply them to potentially the challenges ahead. You know, we're all concerned about what's going to happen this fall and winter in terms of a second wave. And, uh, and you know, I, I forget now who's, who said this, um, but, uh, you know, we had very similar uh, monitoring systems to what Joe had described with regards to PP adherence. And we had tremendous focus in terms of our planning and preparation and communication of our novel processes. But as time goes on, the novelty starts to fade and um, maintaining adherence to those best practices and also supporting the team that has been under a great deal of stress now for months on end um, represent, I think, two big challenges for our managers. So, I, I guess I'll turn to Geneva just to ask the second question first and give the rest of the panel uh, a chance to think about the first. How, do you, how are you monitoring your teams, how staff and other members in the unit right now, um, to find out how they are doing on a regular basis um, and identifying opportunities for support? And then I think we'll move back to um, the second question after that, and I'll open it to anybody in terms of how um, we're drawing from your experiences to make sure that that planning and preparation and the fine tuning that you have um, stays as strong as it can be for the months ahead. Geneva? Thanks. I think, you know, both uh, situational awareness, having an understanding of what's going on around us, as well as situational monitoring, um, you know, which is sort of assessing to gain an understanding of what's happening are, are two things that we've continued to do, uh, not only throughout the pandemic, but certainly um, in this post uh, phase. And so we've spent a lot of time, particularly with our residents and fellows, um, monitoring them and, and really getting an understanding to what's integral to their wellness. You know, we've set up peer-to-peer -peer, um, groups. We've done a lot of walk rounds in the intensive care unit to make sure that whatever it is that they might have or need uh, gets identified. 
um, and also making sure that, that what they've needed in terms of task assistance uh, was there. You know, they, they did a yeoman's job throughout the entire pandemic and continue to do. Uh, in fact, uh, our health system's response uh, could not have been as outstanding as it was had it not been for the efforts of our residents and fellows within, within the organization. And I, I think that is well recognized and well appreciated. Um, and I owe a great debt to them for, for everything that they've done. I think they, they really spent a lot of time um, protecting each other from work overload, which I think was incredibly important. You know, it's different from a program director's standpoint to try to, to mitigate that overload, but to have their own peers um, make sure that they had each other's back and really uh, took good care of those issues was incredibly important. Um, and everything that they requested or needed was really within the context of providing safe care for their patients. It was never um, in the context of just taking care of themselves, um, which I think was incredibly important. So making sure um, that we as leaders within the health system um, could really make sure that the environment was psychologically safe for them so they could ask for what they needed um, and know that whatever it was that they needed to make their, their care safe would be given to them um, was incredibly important. And so those are the things that we continue to do as we move forward. And that's an integral part of our, our next surge plan, if you will. Um, from a GME standpoint, we've um, collected all of this information and we've used it uh, to create a surge plan for the next wave um, so that we can be a bit more facile uh, in these team building um, um, issues as we come across uh, the next wave that, that we're bound to face. To piggyback a little bit on what Geneva was saying, um, the big thing that I've learned from, from my own experiences with, with um, the advanced practitioner team is checking in a little bit more. Um, how are you doing? The situational awareness that she was talking about, mutual um, situational awareness. And, you know, you think that we as critical care providers are tough. We're type A personalities. We are headstrong. Um, everybody's going to be fine. But uh, understanding that, um, the emotional, the mental, um, it takes a big toll on our providers and checking in a little bit more, checking in on each other. I think going into a possible next surge is, is a big thing I've taken away. Um, one of my team members even suggested asking everybody to, to look out for each other. And, and if they notice someone has a, a bad day, reaching out uh, to me and, and maybe I can get, get them a day off the next day if it was you know, a little bit to help from, a, from that standpoint. Um, so I think, you know, really looking out for each other as much as everybody worked together and how hard they worked, um, being sure that everybody is okay in the end um, is something we need to do for everyone. Um, in our institution, our behavioral health program um, and psychiatry have started a program of more formalized sessions with providers, with staff um, uh, across the board to, to offer that support as well. Um, so I think what Geneva was saying was a, a fantastic point to bring up. And this is Julie. I'm going to piggyback a little bit too on that. So, um, you know, we've recognized over the course of the last few weeks here at our institution um, that there's, I don't really want to call it burnout, but just, you know, a stress and fatigue happening, knowing that we're going to be going into the next um, whatever the fall is going to bring, let's just put it that way. Um, anyway, so what we've done at our organization is um, we have taken a look at, okay, do we need to keep all these patients still cohorted? Um, can we um, move them to their regular floors? So for example, if they came in for a surgical procedure and they ended up testing positive, um, do they need to go back to the surgical floor or do they really need to go to the COVID floor? What we're seeing is a lot of our nursing and our RT staff are um, you know, worn out. So we're working on trying to figure out a way to not cohort them, spread the wealth for a lack of a better word a little bit, making sure we have all the, um, everyone trained um, the, the goal for us would be, you know, by uh, Thanksgiving time, everyone can basically take care of a COVID patient anywhere in our organization um, to kind of, you know, 
spread that out a little bit. Um, the other thing that we're really doing is trying to put some fun back into what we all do. Um, you know, prior to COVID, I'm sure we all had, you know, things that we could go out and do as teams. We could be outside the hospital doing things as teams because we didn't have to worry about the social distancing. We didn't have to worry about some of that stuff um, that's going on currently. So what we're trying to do is find ways to still do fun things here at work. Um, for example, today we had a salsa eating contest. Um, every, some people made salsa and we had a contest with the ICU teams and the RT teams and we had our, our pulmonologists um, actually um, who are intensivists, they um, picked who had the best salsa, um, you know, just, just little things like that. Um, here, I'm in Iowa, and so one of the big things here in Iowa is the state fair, um, and that obviously was canceled for pretty obvious reasons, but um, so with that, uh, we recognize that a lot of our staff would miss out on that, so our ICU teams and our respiratory teams, along with our physicians, we got together and we hosted kind of a carnival type of thing within the organization, within following social distancing and all that. And we even had um, physicians who were willing to get in a dunk tank so that the nurses and the therapists could just take out their frustration they might have by dunking their favorite doctor um, in the dunk tank, you know, just things like that. We're just trying to find things that we can do to continue to bring down stress. And then also looking at, uh, you know, systems we have in place with our employee assistance programs. Um, you know, our, our wellness teams here have come at least with the RTs and done some stress management strategies. Um, we've worked with our pastoral care services, um, to just make sure that they have the opportunity if they want to go to the chapel and have a session to kind of get some frustration out or talk about a bad situation, they're, they're able to do that. Um, so those are some of the things that we've been doing here that can happen here at the organization that then also could carry over to their home life um, because that's the other thing. Usually your home life is where you can get away from everything, but when you can't go out and do some of the things you typically would do um, to relieve that stress, it is uh, more difficult. So. Joe, did you wanna go next? Sure, sure. Um, so I'd, I'd like to just add a couple of things. And I think for me, you know, supporting the staff, uh, for me, I really kind of focus on probably three different areas. The first area that I, I'd like to talk about real quickly is just, I think there needs to be consistent and, and, and committed leadership. Um, I think that a lot of the staff buy into the leader uh, and, and the, the ability to convince them and give confidence and, and gain, gain their confidence. So one of the things that I think is, is special about our organization is um, everybody from the top down, our CEO, COO, everybody really, our CMO, um, we really have a vision. Um, we had a vision all along. We've somehow created that vision. And I think everybody has bought into it, given our, um, our, our ability to combat this as a team. Um, so I think one thing is, and although our census is somewhat stable right now, um, you know, and although we're we're not ready to exhale just yet, because we again everybody's looking forward to the to the projections, um, and we want to make sure that the staff know that we're not letting up, we're not taking our foot off the gas here. We're making sure that they are our priority. Um, we are, you know, making sure that we still maintain that discussion around making sure that we have PPE. Um, we're looking for process improvement. I think that's probably another thing as well. We have a little bit of time right now. We are committed and we want to be very transparent and clear with the staff to make sure they know what we're doing, why we're doing it. Um, we're, we're, you know, moving people around a little bit so we can decontaminate hallways, open things up and try to get everything cleaned again, using this opportunity to optimize what supplies we might need in the future um, and helping them to understand that we're here to help them um, do their job better. Um, listening to what they're saying. I think that's a big one. Keep our ears open, listen to what they're saying, tell us what works and what doesn't work so we can try to help them. Um, and then the last thing is, um, you know, when we, when we had our first surge here in Miami, we've kind of had two surges, the first surge and then the post Memorial Day surge. Um, I think the first surge, we did a great job of, of a lot of community involvement. We had, you know, the fire and the police parades. We had athletic teams who wanted to, you know, Zoom with all of our staff members. We had a lot of really fun things to kind of take our mind off a little bit. Um, and then the, in our second phase, we didn't really, you know, some of that has started to die down and we've now started to set into the mindset like this is really a marathon and it's not a sprint and it's not going to go away. So we just want to make sure that we stay committed to the staff. 
Um, and then my real third focus is really on making sure that we stay committed to having good staffing. Um, understanding that if another surge hits, we've got to have enough nurses, enough physicians, we've got to have all these protocols in place and just stick to them. Um, you know, staying the course and making sure that, you know, because unfortunately right now we're, we're staffed with a fair amount of traveler and agency nurses um, and, and other staff as well, other agency respiratory therapists and things like that. We need to stay committed and our, and our, and our senior leadership has told me time and time again, we'll take it on the chin. We'll keep them here because we don't want to take a chance that we're stuck without staff when the next phase hits. And I think that goes a long way to letting the staff know that, you know, that we are supportive of them and that we're trying our best to provide an environment where they can, you know, not get overwhelmed um, as much as possible. So I'm hearing the key is to make sure that we support our people, make sure that they have the, the resources that they can, they can do their job safely and effectively, and that we're thoughtful in terms of making sure that they have both peer support, time outside of work to recover, and from a management standpoint, we need to listen, think creatively about ways to improve our system to make their jobs easier to do so that we can take better care of our patients. Um, let's, let's keep that discussion going. Kathy, I think you were next. Yeah. So um, I think, you know, our COVID surge plan was always built so that it could be versatile so that if we, if we ramp down, we could always ramp up at any point. So, and that could be anywhere at any point within the surge program and plan itself. So I think we're well suited to do that. But I think also, you know, because we've been kind of on the downside of things for a while, we don't want people to lose those skills. So actually all of our mock codes and the mock simulations have been COVID related. So they're all mock COVID patients. Every one of our simulation and code mock codes are COVID related right now. So it's just to keep everybody in the same mindset because I know as a respiratory therapist, my first instinct when I run into a room of a code patient is to want to bag them. And obviously that's not what we do in a COVID patient. Um, so, um, so we're just kind of keeping everybody in that correct, you know, kind of chain of events of, of the things that we should do for our COVID patients and even transporting them within the hospital for, from hospital to hospital. The things that we do are very different. So just making sure that we keep those skill sets up. Um, so I think that, you know, just making sure that everybody remembers what they're supposed to do and, and making sure that those skills are um, still in the forefront of their minds is, is also something that's very important so that they stay safe. Um, that's another big part of what we're doing right now. Um, and, and again, we're still in, we're still in that mindset of uh, supplies. I mean, we're still finding that things like endotracheal tubes are still in short supply. You know, um, so our supply chain, we're still working really, really hard with them to make sure that we don't run short on those kinds of things. So, um, and, and going to the ICUs and giving our, our therapists and I'm sure the nurses are doing the same thing that we're making sure that we give them some relief just from their everyday duties. So that's, that's kind of what we're, that's the place where we're at right now and in, in our facility. No, oh, thanks, Kathy. Uh, James and Carl, I think, I think you guys might have the last words here. We've just got five minutes left. Well, I think Joe hit it, how important leadership is, but it's not just the leadership at the top within the organization. It's the team leadership on the ground at the bedside. You always have to give the respect and recognition of the excellent work that everybody's doing. Mm -hmm. And the other thing, because it was so contagious doing this excellent patient care, that the people didn't realize they were getting fatigued and no different than a sports team. I had to pull people off, not because they were doing bad work because they didn't know when it was time they needed a break. So the leader had, team leader had to be fully engaged in real time all the time. And I know Julie mentioned how important it was to do things outside the organization for relief and mental uh, relief. But I found it was important also during doing this during the day with my team the two greatest two periods of the day that it was the greatest joy in my life in New York City is when these giants would show up, a whole team of giants with Google eyes that were blacked out. 
can anybody guess who these people were showing up twice, twice a day, uh, shift? And they were giants. They were the orthopedic residents <laughs> that came in <laughs> to help with proning. And it was just incredible because they were covered from head to toe with ty Tyvex white. They had th their goggles on that were all blacked out. I couldn't see who they were. And it was the greatest joy in the day for me. And I let my team know this was fantastic. But so you needed a break in the monotony of the given day of the stress of the work, not just only after work and the recognition of the fine work they were doing, but you had to find the joy during the day. Um, that was also very helpful. And then obviously debriefing afterwards, if there was a challenging issue or a death of a patient that people worked on for weeks that passed away, no different than we would normally do to listen. And it was very important to listen, listen to all the team members, because that was really the only time that you realized what was going on, what was on their mind. So listening, team leadership, recognition, and finding any distraction during the day. Again, the, the greatest memory I have is the Giants walking in twice a shift. You never knew who they were because they were covered from head to toe. <laughs> James? I mean, that's such a positive image to end on. I, I, I don't know if I want to say anything after that. <laughs> um, I, I think um, we, you know, a lot of people have mentioned checking in with the teams and trying to figure out you know, what's working, what's not working. Um, and I would say as a director of the unit, um, one of the ways that we, you know, we try to make lemons out of, or lemonade out of these lemons is, well, how can we as a system improve and use all these experiences to continue to get better? And how can we apply that to the mission and vision of our hospital? Because I think that's something that we all believe in. Um, but then I think the other thing that you know, um, we haven't discussed yet is that a lot of these stressors we're experiencing take place outside the workplace as well. Um, and so I, I live in Seattle and, you know, we're a sort of outdoorsy group of people and we're, we have the worst air quality we've had in, you know, a long time right now. And so um, it's these, these stressors that I think are, you know, finding people at home now that uh, schools are impacted, daycare is impacted, people they know are out of work or being furloughed, you know, there's just a litany of things. And you don't find out about those things until you ask about them. Um, and you, you may not have a solution for it. You know, I, I, daycare is rough around Seattle and so we don't have a good solution but just asking about it and bringing it up is going to help mobilize resources that if we do have some way to help them you know our institution is starting to try to do that so I think just recognizing the impact on the whole person and not just the uh, the employee or the professional identity of the person is also an important factor here yeah you know gosh I, I feel like we have covered so much ground uh, over the course of the last now 58 minutes, and yet there's still so much more that we need to talk about in terms of detail behind all the tremendous work and innovation that you all have done in all of your individual facilities. So we're going to try to keep this conversation going in the coming weeks so that um, we can provide um, the participants today with more specifics in terms of the efforts that you all are doing in your own individual institutions. I think um, for right now, I will, uh, I will just bring this a little bit to a close with a few last thoughts. So for me, um, I think that the COVID pandemic has reminded me very acutely um, about uh, the importance of um, teamwork and collaboration to take care of the challenging COVID patients and all of the different um, sort of new and different um, problems that we have faced in terms of um, personal protective equipment, safety, supplies, um, and dealing with a completely novel infection. For me, I think that, um, you know, I, I think that the tremendous work that people have done has been highlighted very nicely in the discussion, um, you know, over the, over the course of this hour, and really how to sustain that work and carry it forward during the months to come is the biggest challenge, um, both for our teams that have been doing this day in, day out now for months on end, and also for those individuals we turn to, um, those giants, to, uh, to help us during time of need. And as, as you know, leaders, as managers, I think the biggest challenge um, is, uh, is listening, maintaining that impeccable attention to detail that we all started with early in the pandemic with our processes and procedures, um, the leadership engagements, 
mutual support and situational awareness that uh, the, the uh, Geneva and so many others were talking about. Um, and, uh, and keeping that planning and preparedness, you know, at, at its peak through things like simulation, what Kathy was talking about, through creative, um, you know, identification of barriers and solutions for those things. I, I think that's really going to be the challenges ahead. Well, you know, I would I would love to have everybody sort of give a, a final two words here. Um, I, I think we're out of time to do that. I'm afraid, um, but I, I hope that we will we will take this opportunity to carry this conversation forward in the in the weeks to months to come. And I want to thank this group for really an incredible conversation over the course of the last hour. Um, so with that, we'll, uh, we'll bring this discussion to a close. Thank you very much for joining us for this month's wellness webinar, and we look forward to seeing you again in the months to come.